This week's episode is a real throwback in oh so many ways. First of all, as usual, I chat with my guest about a book we read way back in the 90s. Immediate throwback status right there. But it's not just that. Episode 198 is also a high school reunion of sorts. You'll hear more about my guest in a few minutes, but trust me when I tell you that you won't want to miss out on some candid memory swapping. In the meantime, let me fill you in on this week's book. P.S. Longer Letter Later was written by two legitimate kid-lit icons, Anne M. Martin and Paula Danziger. You know them, you love them, and in this little gem published in 1998, you get them both. P.S. Longer Letter Later is an epistolary novel that centers the best friendship between Elizabeth and Tara, aka Tara Starr. When Tara moves to Ohio with her typically flaky parents, they are forced to shift their relationship into pen pal mode. Remember, it's 1998. But when Elizabeth's seemingly perfect family starts to fall apart, just as Tara's life is beginning to get easier and more fun, their friendship feels the strain of all the distance between them. The tension plays out in their letters back and forth to one another, modeling communication, healthy conflict, and maybe even a little tough love for young readers. Today, my guests and I will talk about how much we loved books in this format when we were kids, how we imagined the process of writing with a collaborator might go, our surprise about how heavy P.S. Longer Letter Later was, the unique nature of pen pal relationships, and changing friendship dynamics. We also discuss how we relate to both Elizabeth and Tara, and how the authors have successfully subverted some of the ideas of normalcy and perfection with which we were conditioned when we were kids. Now, I get to introduce you to my guest, Colleen McKeegan. Colleen and I went to high school together and have had parallel paths ever since. Her appearance on the show today is quite literally years in the making. We'll tell you more about that in the first few minutes of our conversation. Colleen is a writer and editor who's held roles at Marie Claire, where her work was nominated for a National Magazine Award, Bloomberg, and Fortune, among others. A native of Allentown, Pennsylvania, and a graduate of Georgetown University, she now lives with her family in New York. Colleen's debut novel, The Wild One, is available wherever books are sold the day this episode drops, June 14th, 2022, and I am so excited to be part of that celebration. You can follow Colleen on Instagram at clmcgegan and on Twitter at clmlehi. While we're talking about social media, don't forget to follow SSR on your favorite platforms. The show is at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. We are just two weeks away from our 200th episode and four-year anniversary. I can't believe this is happening. It wouldn't be possible without each and every one of you, and I have to give a special shout-out to SSR's patrons, whose contributions have really made it happen. I'm planning a little Patreon party to celebrate these milestones for the show, and all patrons, even at the $1 level, will get the invite. There are other perks available too, and you can read all about them at www.patreon.com SSRpodcast, or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. In July, the Patreon book club is reading The Agathas, and you should totally join us. See you there. This episode is brought to you by the AHK Writing Community, a project I started back in April in hopes of connecting aspiring fiction writers and sharing what I learned in my MFA program. Whether you think writing short stories could be a fun hobby, or you've already written half of a novel, you're welcome in the group. I offer accountability, workshopping, prompts, writing advice, and lots of writing discussion. Check it out at www.patreon.com ahkwriters and feel free to send me a DM if you have any questions. As always, I would love to point all the audiobook lovers in the audience in the direction of Libro FM, which is my audiobook platform of choice. It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. Let's be honest, we all rely on Amazon for a lot of things, but since audiobooks are delivered to your phone immediately, no matter where you buy them, this is a great place to make the switch. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm will sound and cost the exact same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, 
and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Colleen. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I feel like we really need to set this up for listeners because we have already been talking for almost 20 minutes. And (laughs) Colleen is the first ever guest on the podcast that I actually like experienced life around the same time of these like characters with. So Colleen and I, we went to high school together. We were cheerleaders together. Oh, God. Really taking us back. (laughs) Yeah. And then we both were not cheerleaders together. We both, I think, like reached the end of our careers uh, around the same time. And Colleen was a year older. I mean, you're still a year older than me, but like Mm -hmm. you were a year ahead of me in school. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, and I don't think I've ever told you this before, but my one of my like main memories of you is I had to like volunteer at it was probably your I don't know what prom it was and I was there like working for student government or whatever and I remember you wore this like blue dress and I was like oh my god Colleen is so cool and (laughs) I want to be just like her and that dress is amazing and I remember like my mom at some point saw the picture, she's like, Colleen looked like Cinderella at the prom. Oh my gosh. I know, I know exactly what dress you're talking about. I think that was senior, that was senior prom when I was a junior. And I went and I had to get a dress completely last minute because I, Kristen and Zim, some of for the listeners, these are yes. um, friends of ours who Ali still knows as well. And one of their friends needed a date last minute. And he asked me, I think a week before. So my mom and I went to this random shop like outside of Philly that I ended up, it was like a, a basically like a fancy kid's dress, um, but it, it ended up working out. And I think to this day, even though it was a kid's dress, it might have been my most glamorous uh, moment in high school. <laughs> it was very glamorous. Um, so yeah, I was always like, I was like, oh my gosh, golly, it's so cool. And now it's so neat that we are still in touch. We're still friends. We both went to college in DC. We mm-hmm. interned together one summer, which was a surprise. Like I remember showing up that day and I was so relieved to like recognize somebody Yep. And then we were both in New York and we got drinks a couple of, like we always were kind of in the same like media space, book space. And then when I started freelance writing, I got to write for you a couple of times. We have like a lot of weird connections. Like my brother-in-law is best friends with your best friend's husband. Like mm-hmm. it's, we are, we are bound for life. Our world is very interconnected. Yeah, seriously. It's It's been um so, so fun to obviously be able to stay in touch over all these years, but then to also see all the success that you've had and now to be able to be on your podcast. It's just, again, I, I've told you ahead of this that I was telling everybody from Emmaus, our hometown, that I'm still friendly with. I'm like, you have to listen. I'm going on Ali's podcast. And everybody was very excited. <laughs> well, I feel like we have to say hello to everybody know, from seriously. Emmaus right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Um, go Hornets, I guess, maybe. (laughs) So yeah, I also, I can't wait to talk about your book, which we will do shortly, but I I have to to mention before we get into today's real topic of conversation that I so clearly remember the day that we got drinks. And we talked about this a little bit before I hit record and you told me about your book and it was pretty early on. And I feel like this podcast episode is so long in the making because You told me about the book that day and I have to tell you, and I'm not just saying this, like you talking about your experience at the Northern California Writers Retreat, like it honestly like lit a fire under my ass to start writing. And then when I saw you like actually doing it, I was like, oh, people, people can do this. It made it feel (laughs) like, I mean, it's so hard, obviously. I don't take that for granted, but it was very inspiring to me. And then I feel like this episode, like when you signed with your agent, I remember texting you and being like, okay, like when the book comes out, 
we're gonna have you on the show. Yeah, you you actually did. You were so you were so on top of it, and it also made me feel like there were more than you know, like two people in the world who were excited about this book. That being myself and my agent, obviously at the time. Yes. So it was very exciting to to get, and truly, like this has been years in the making. Yeah, because then when you sold the book, it was like, mm-hmm. okay now when the book comes out, we're still going to have you on the show. So this is yours. So I'm very excited that you're on. And we are talking about P.S. Longer Letter Later, which I have been really looking forward to rereading and talking about for a long time. Did you read this as a kid? Oh, I totally read it as a kid. I assume you did too. Yes, I did. Okay. So what do you remember about it? And why did you want to come back to it for the podcast? So I actually read this book at camp, which makes it all the more fitting. And I know we'll talk about the wild one later, but the wild one is there are chapters that are set in the past that take place at a summer camp, an all girls summer camp that was inspired by my time um, at summer camp. Setting only, certainly not plot since it is a thriller. I hope not. But, (laughs) But I actually, like the second that you sent me the list and I was looking through and I remembered the title, but then I also just the cover, like when I clicked on it and it took me to this cover of the, you know, Apple signature version of the book, I was like, whoa, time traveling back to being in my bunk during rest hour and reading this book. And I just remember, I couldn't fully remember the plot details of it, but I did remember the format a bit that it was told in, um, it was sort of at that time, I remember thinking it was like kind of cool and edgy because the format is through letters written, the girls going back and forth. And I just remembered loving it when I was that age. And then on top of all of that, when I was doing research for The Wild One, I went through an old box of letters I had written home to my to my sisters, to my friends, to my parents. And one of the things, I completely stole this from this book. I would sign quick letters to my mom or to my parents in particular, because usually those were the ones that were like, I'm having fun. I'm still alive. Bye. <laughs> I would sign it longer letter later. And at the very end of this book, one of the last letters, I think it's Elizabeth, one of the, the main characters in the book, she signs it with with this sort of handwritten big L and then the longer letter uh, later are kind of written within it. And I cannot tell you how many letters I have that I, I found when I was doing research for The Wild One that basically completely mimicked that little, I guess, sign off. And I was just like dying laughing when you sent it to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just, it could not, there could not be a more perfect book for me to read both in relation to The Wild One and like the time in my life that helped inspire it, but also in terms of a book that like I just loved when I was that age. It's so weird that does happen occasionally because for the most part, like I choose books kind of at random to send to guests. Like I try if I know that an author writes in a certain genre to like give them a few options that are maybe lean more romancy or lean more mystery. But every once in a while, I do feel like there's a weird like moment where it just magically works out that I send some somebody something that's like absolutely perfect. I would love if you find those letters again. Could you send a picture of that sign off? Because we can post it. It would be so fun. <laughs> I'm sure I have them. And because uh, I sent so like as I was reading through these letters, as you would imagine, the details in some of them, like I was sending them to my sisters and whatnot. And I remember I sent one of like the pictures of that sign off to because I Jen read the book, my younger sister. I know she read the book too. I think my older sister was like a tiny bit too old when it came out that she was, she had moved on from, you know, this, this kind of genre of book, but Jen and I were still really into it and we have very similar literary appetites. So um, I sent it to Jen and she was like, I remember that. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we will post that on the SSR Instagram this week, listeners. So go, go check that out. So I did read this book. Um, It came out in 1998. And so I feel like I probably read it pretty soon after it came out. And I also remember thinking it was so edgy. Like I loved epistolary novels when I was a kid. I still do. But I think edgy was probably like a word that I would have assigned to it as a kid too. Because it's just not something that you saw very often. And anytime a book was in like unique format, I was like, wow, like how groundbreaking. Yeah. (laughs) And I have to say that I was shocked by the reread because Mm -hmm. I remember it being, I don't know, just like fun letters back and forth between two best friends. And I was shocked by how heavy the subject matter is in this book. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll break that down. I definitely agree with that. I remembered that there were some like financial issues and that there were some heavier topics covered, but I also remembered like 
still being able to relate to both characters and their stories and whatnot. And I think that is one of the, I, I don't want to say charming is the wrong word, but it's it's what makes, I think, this book so digestible for its target audience, which is that since it's told from the perspective of two young girls who are just living their lives and told in voices that are so unique to that age where they are dealing with these like very, very heavy life changes and really, really kind of dark subjects. But they're also like in one breath, they're talking about how somebody's dad might be an alcoholic, but in the next, it's like, can you believe she wore that to the dance? Right. You know, it's like very kind of like whiplashy in the sense that being 12 or 13 is. And so that was one of the things that upon rereading it, I had remembered, again, some of the like heavier topics, but I couldn't fully remember how it was tackled. And at the same time, like ahead of reading it, I was thinking like, how did I like digest? Like, did I, was I upset? Was it, how was I feeling about it? And then you read it and you just see how they made it so approachable for the age group that was there where it's not like they're being thrown into like these really traumatic situations as a reader and sort of like left to just flounder and feel too much. It's, it's done in such like a approachable, accessible way where you can mm. like tackle these hard subjects, but you also feel like you're talking to your friends about them. Yeah, because you're getting information in the same way that the girls are getting information. So it feels manageable. Mm -hmm. Before we go any further, we have to talk about the authors because this mm -hmm. is such a cool collaboration between two amazing, like, luminaries of kid literature. Kidlit legends. They are kidlit legends. <laughs> yeah, so we have Anna Martin of Babysitter's Club fame, of course, and then Paula Danziger, who is really well known for the Amber Brown series. I've done one episode about Amber Brown and then, of course, many, many episodes about the Babysitter's Club, which I can link in the show notes for this episode. And Elizabeth is written by Anna Martin. And Tara Starr is written by Paula Danziger, which I think is really interesting. And I, I, I think I did figure that out pretty quickly, just knowing their writing styles. Right. But I would love to know from your perspective as an author, like, can you imagine writing something with another person in this way? Well, I think in this way, it's actually interesting because it's probably easier in, in a yeah. sense where you can take turns. I, I think I might have read, and we can fact check this because I could be wrong, but they actually wrote letters to one another to do this. Yeah. So again, this is before the era of Google Docs. So it's not like they could check it in real time as they were working on these. And you can feel very much like that. There's an authenticity to the the back and forth. but I think certainly writing with another author is a very, very challenging way of approaching a story. I always have such respect and I'm sort of in awe of authors who have done it and have done it well. Um, I'm close with Joe Piazza and she wrote, We Are Not Like Them with Christine Pride and they have written plenty. There's a ton of stuff out there and happy to share links of how they approach that. Um, and how they collaborated on the topic, because they did not take turns writing different chapters from different perspectives. They went about it very much together. I think that's super challenging. I think for this book in particular, like the the approach that Anne and Paula took, it makes sense because the voices are so distinct, but they still mesh really well. And it feels like friends having a conversation. But yeah, I mean, I, I think collaborating with another writer on a full on novel, no matter the approach is always going to be challenging because you like I remember when I first started writing a novel, I was talking to somebody who writes, um, who's a screenwriter, and they like made a joke of basically, "Oh, you're writing a novel, so you're a control freak." <laughs> I was like, "Well, thank you, but yes, <laughs> um, I am." Thank you. Also, it is one of those things where when you're writing and you're building a world and you're creating these characters and whatnot, if you're doing it on your own, you very much get to dictate every single detail, every single plot line, everything that's going to happen to your characters. And it's just up to you for a very long time until you sign with an agent or you have an editor coming in. And even like in workshops, people give feedback, but you still get to make the ultimate decisions. And I think when you have a collaborator, again, like kudos to any author who is doing that, because it just shows that you are a very, very, you're a better person than me, because I think I would totally struggle with that. <laughs> Yes, I totally agree. A couple of weeks ago, we had Rachel Lippincott and Allison Derrick on the mm -hmm. podcast. Rachel's written a few books that have done really well and been bestsellers, but their book that they wrote together, She Gets the Girl, recently hit the New York Times bestseller list. And not only are they collaborators on that novel, but they're married. Oh my gosh. And so hearing them talk about 
how they worked that out was really fascinating. So uh, listeners, if you're interested in just kind of like what that looks like, go check out that episode. I can link it in the show notes. But I did read an interview and and they were pretty vague about it. But Paula and Anne talk about how like their relationship over the course of writing the book kind of went a similar way as Tara and Elizabeth's. And Tara and Elizabeth have a lot of ups and downs in this book. There's a lot of tension. And so I wish we knew like all the juicy details of what kind of arguments they maybe got into or what tension existed between them, because it it sounds like that happened. Yeah. I mean, and I I think again, with it, with any creative process, that's completely normal. And I love that there are sort of echoes of that in the writing itself, because whether it's a creative partnership, a friendship, a romantic relationship, whatever it may be, like, obviously not everything is going to be perfect the entire course of that relationship. And so again, I think it's nice and refreshing in, in this book in particular, that it's not all perfect. And you can kind of see, like, sometimes you're like, why are they even fighting? This is so immature. But that's just the reality of most relationships where you might get in a fight and you're like, why Why are we upset with each other again? Like, I forget. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, sometimes when you're just spending so much time with somebody or you kind of, like, project your emotions on them or have expectations that they're not meeting – like there's just bound to be some kind of freakouts. And again, from a creative standpoint for the authors, like I'm sure that there were ups and downs. And like, again, with the level that they were at in their careers when this happened, I'm sure that there were other people involved too, like wanting mm-hmm. them to go this way or that way or whatever it may be. So yeah, I, I totally wish. I love that kind of like behind the scenes, like gossip about what was actually going down. I totally agree with you. I wish that we knew even more. <laughs> and the format of the book in handwritten letters is such a reminder too of like, the additional strain that the that this delay in communication posed in our in our relationship and of course like it's really easy to misread a text it's really easy to misread an email i know that i am very guilty of adding all kinds of tones and implications to emails and texts and dms that like it's just not there like people are not trying to be rude to me but i think that they are because that's how i'm reading their electronic communication but in this book tara and elizabeth are writing letters back and forth to each other. And so they have even less context, I think. I mean, I think you could probably make an argument that sitting down and writing a letter to someone makes it a more intentional process. Like you're probably being a little bit more thoughtful than you would be if you were just like dashing off an email. But there's the delay of like, if it's going to go in the mail, there's one moment where Elizabeth is worried that her dad is like hiding Tara's letters. There are just so many like potential obstacles to these two communicating. And that adds even more stress and tension to their relationship, which is in flux. I do find that I sometimes take for granted just like the immediacy of our communication sometimes. And this like puts it into perspective. And the sequel to this book, which is called Snail Mail No More, Mm -hmm. which I hope we get to do on the podcast at some point, does take it into the email. I was going to say, hello, internet. Yes, hello, internet. Hello, AOL. (laughs) Um, Well, it's funny, though. I thought from a like a plot standpoint, that the authors did a very good job of giving reasons for why in 1998, these two couldn't just pick up the phone and call one another. And one of the recurring themes, I think, throughout the book is the lack of control that that age allows oftentimes. So in both cases, like the girls can't just pick up the phone and call one another because they're not paying their own phone bills and their families have different rules and different budgets and things along those lines. Again, things that I think now we take for granted because most people have cell phones and certain plans that allow for it. And like, or you can go on iMessage and if you're on Wi-Fi, it doesn't cost anything. So it just was kind of interesting, again, seeing how it was set up in a way that within the first few pages, you weren't like, well, why don't they just pick up the phone and call each other? Why are they writing these letters? And it added another layer of tension, uh, kind of understanding why, for instance, like Tara and her family couldn't just call Elizabeth because they were worried about their budget, whereas Elizabeth's family had a very controlling dad who didn't like Tara Starr. And, you know, it, it just is, it added these subtle layers, I would say, that ultimately start unraveling a bit as you get further along in the novel and you see how the different families are progressing over this year. Totally. Let's talk more about the characters because we do, of course, have these two very rich main characters and we get to know them so well because we're we're experiencing like an unfiltered view of their world through these letters. 
I would love to know, Colleen, you mentioned earlier on that you related to each of them in different ways. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, gosh, this is like, I feel like I'm talking to my therapist, you know. Yes, Um, come on in. (laughs) But I would say it's funny because when I was reading it when I was younger, I do remember feeling like I related, or in the earlier chapters, I would say, uh, I related more to Elizabeth. I had gone to, uh, I went from K through eight to a Catholic school. It was just more of a buttoned up type of environment. I was definitely raised to sort of follow the rules. And I certainly, when I got my ears pierced, I remember I had a pair of like pearl earrings, you know, fake, but pearl earrings nonetheless. (laughs) And there was a little bit of that very kind of controlled sense of identity, I would say, that Elizabeth has, and that is pushed on her a bit by her family. But at the same time, I think, and my sisters are kind of in the same boat as me, like we, our parents also encouraged us to be very kind of creative. And my older sister did a lot of theater. Me and my younger sister did a lot of like actual studio art and things along those lines. We were not as talented in the theater world as Kelly was. So uh, we would have loved to be stars in any play, but we just, that was never in the cards for us. (laughs) But, you know, generally excelled in the studio art. And then obviously I excelled in writing and, and whatnot. And so my parents really encouraged us to pursue that as well. So it was, it was funny with both of them, where I felt that I could relate to that more buttoned up aspect of Elizabeth. And honestly, sometimes her shyness, as I got older, I definitely came out of my shell more, but I was actually a pretty shy kid. And my older sister was much more of the extrovert. And then with Tara Starr, in a way, I think she represented like who I wanted to be a little bit more. I just really, like if I could have walked around in, like a cool band shirt and, you know, like ripped leggings and like just dye part of my hair purple. I mean, at age 12, that was a dream. Um, and it just wasn't going to happen because honestly, I think my principal at my school would have probably kicked me out. I mean, they would make us, if people showed up with makeup, you had to wash it off. So um, they both in a way um, represented parts of my personality. Tara Starr was a little bit more of a fantasy, I think. And then Elizabeth was slightly more of the reality. But in terms of the loving families or the support, I do think that I ultimately felt like my familial dynamic was probably certainly not like Tara Starr's because my parents did not have me when they were 17. But kind of the support and and whatnot, I felt a little bit more that lines more with probably um, my relationship with my parents. But yeah, it was just kind of interesting rereading it. And I remembered there were certain like little moments, like Tara Starr talking about what she wore to her New Year's Eve party. And she had that like black dress with kind of like the cow neck and whatnot. And I remember reading that at the time and being like, I want that dress. I need to find that dress. (laughs) Just (laughs) loving it. And it took me right back to that moment of reading it again when I was that age um, and thinking she was just so cool. But then also thinking like Elizabeth, you know, there was something so polished and controlled about her that I was like a little bit jealous of too, Mm -hmm. where I was like, oh, like she's just so perfect, you know? And that's again, why I think the, the authors do such a good job of like giving each of the characters they're not 2D. They're very much like, they feel very real. They feel like real girls. And that's part of why I think, again, as a young reader, I related to both of them in different ways, um, much like I would to my friends, you know? What about you? What do you, like, what was your general take on them? Well, I don't want to project uh, myself and my experience onto you, but I just, I feel like we have a lot in common. And I, as I sit here and talk to you about this, like, I too, I think was so much more shy and controlled when I was in high school than I am now. And it's almost making me sad because I feel like if we'd both been a little more outgoing in high school, we probably would have been like best friends and (laughs) we just had to wait a little bit longer to become friends. I had a similar experience where I related to each of them in different ways. I think that, and I I love your thoughts on this because I've shared it on the podcast before. I think that the place where we're from, where we grew up, I think it was fairly conservative with like a lowercase c. Like I feel that our area, and I I know it's changed, but when I look back on kind of like what the norms were in our town, in our school, I think that somebody like Elizabeth was probably more aspirational for most people. It was a very big high school, like very suburban, very Friday Night Lights football vibe. And I just think there wasn't as much room to be a Tara star mm-hmm. as there was to be an Elizabeth. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it's it's somewhat fair to say. I think there were certainly, I mean, I would say I agree with your assessment of 
where we grew up, one of the things I still talk about this with my mom all the time was so much was very gendered in our in our town and sort of expectations of not 1950s expectations necessarily, but just kind of how you acted what your place was in relationships, things along those lines. And, you know, certainly I felt that much more in high school than I did even at my Catholic school growing up. But but that was something that I think it's it sort of supports what you're saying, which is that like Elizabeth and that approach, um, and quite honestly, more like her mom. Yeah. Her mom felt very familiar to me in terms of friends, parents, definitely throughout my time growing up, I witnessed a lot of families fall apart, especially around the time of the financial crisis, but even before that. And you saw some of these kinds of stories where it was just like your picture perfect neighbor actually had insane amounts of debt. And I think that's obviously a common story now across the country and it's heartbreaking, but it also oftentimes was sort of this it very much mirrors what happens in the book, which is that Elizabeth's father is like not saving anything, is excessively spending, and is not letting his wife have an identity of her own, not letting her work because he's so concerned with perception. And and yeah, I, I think for sure that was that was definitely like an approach. And then I also think his judgment of Tara Starr's parents and her family was again something that there were plenty of families that were somewhat like that at our high school. And depending on who you chatted with, some people thought it was great and it was like awesome and they wanted to support them however they could. And others just had nothing great to say for no real reason except for their own judgment and their own sort of like hatred, quite honestly, over a situation that they didn't understand or had no sort of, they just weren't empathetic, I guess. And and yeah, so I, I think again, in a weird way, the... This, the book itself is so good because it's so relatable and everybody knows both families, but they do it in a way that it's very individualistic about like these specific families. It doesn't feel like they're trying to like shove some sort of like larger message or push for like social justice in some capacity down the reader's throat. It's just like, here's Tara Starr's family and this is what they're like. Here's Elizabeth's family and this is what they're like. And this is how they clash. And they do it in such a nice subtle way, again, through the girls saying like, I know your dad doesn't like me or he might be throwing out my letters. And I, I, I think, again, it's just what makes the novel kind of brilliant for its age group because it reading it at that age, you still even know exactly who those families are. And, and I relate to both families in different ways. And I think this is part of why I related to both girls. I like you, I think I was probably more of an Elizabeth personality wise when I was in high school, much the way I was more of like a Marianne in the Babysitter's Club when I was yeah. in high school, but I wanted to be Tara Star. Like I think inside I wanted to be Tara Star. I wanted to be that cool and that free and that creative. But because my parents are divorced and so I always like sort of occupied two families and those families obviously like both changed a lot over time and they evolved and people grow and change. And so I think I experienced like lots of different family dynamics over the course of my life because my parents got divorced when I was two. And so without getting too far into any specifics, like I think that I can relate to almost every iteration except for the overspending. Uh, We haven't had that in my family, but like I think I can relate to almost every other iteration of the two families in this book. And so I felt for both of the girls in different ways One thing that I love about this book, among others, is that it sort of turns on its head this idea of like, what is a normal family? And this speaks to something that you were saying before, Colleen, where, and I remember it very clearly in high school, and it's something that stuck with me, like, and and I think this isn't specific to our community, this is something I'm sure most people can relate to, but there are always those families in any town where you look around, you look at them, you're like, they're perfect. Mm -hmm. They are perfect. And I certainly growing up as a child of divorce who often felt very split, like I looked at those families and I was really envious because I was like, it's so, it must be so easy. It's so perfect. They have these like literal picket fence lives. And then for all kinds of reasons, maybe there would be a death or a divorce or some other kind of trouble. And I remember so clearly my mom telling me over and over again, no family is perfect. Yeah ever. And there's no such thing as a quote, normal family. And that's not even a word that we like to use anymore. Yeah. And what's fascinating about Tara and Elizabeth's journeys in this book is that their roles really reverse. Not only does Tara move away and move to Ohio, and that's of course like the premise for their new letter writing relationship, 
But at the outset, Elizabeth is the one who has this sort of picture perfect by 1998 standards family. Mm -hmm. She has a little sister named Emma. It's clear from a lot of the context clues in, in Tara's letters that Elizabeth has this like really fancy life. They just like jet set it off to Disney World. And, mm-hmm. and that's not something that Tara can really wrap her head around. She has a mom who doesn't have to work, even though right. she wants to, because the dad makes so much money. And then Tara, by contrast, she has these parents that got married when they were 17 because her mom got pregnant. And it seems like there's been a lot of financial instability. Like it's not really clear who has a job all the time. And once they move to Ohio, they kind of get their acts together. They both lock down jobs. They decide that they're going to go back to school. They're talking about having another baby. They end up getting pregnant at the end. And her family starts to look a lot more sort of typical by 1998 standards, right. while Elizabeth's family is is falling apart. She starts to realize that things are not what they appear with her dad. He's drinking a lot. And she picks up on the fact that this is like a disease in a way that I really loved. There's a line near the end where she's like, I couldn't be mad at my dad any more than I could be mad at somebody who got cancer, Mm -hmm. which I loved because I think especially in 1998, like that was not a narrative I was hearing a lot about addiction. So I thought that that was really great. But by the end of the book, Elizabeth's parents are divorced because her dad has been drinking sort of to cope with his spending addiction. He's lost his job. They've had to downsize into this apartment. Her mom has had to get a job, which she's excited about, but obviously like totally shakes up the dynamic of the family. Elizabeth has had to take on responsibility for her little sister and her family suddenly looks a lot less typical than Tara's family. And I, I really appreciated that shakeup. And it's funny because, you know, we're saying less typical, but in a way it actually is more normal, right? Like in, in both situations, you're seeing minus Elizabeth's dad, who just kind of checks out, obviously has a very weak personality and certainly has his struggles. But I also think it's one of those things where the way they approach addiction was a little bit like it is a disease. But then when he goes beyond that, when he just kind of is cowardly, that's not due to addiction. That's that's due to like deeper issues that he has. And that's acknowledged. And so, you know, in a way, I think one of the beautiful parts of this book is that it shows essentially the power of love and support that you can find within your family when you need it most. And when you can find in your chosen family as well, which Elizabeth obviously has chosen Tara Starr's family as part of her own an extended part of her own. And you see, um, I love the letters from Tara Starr's mom and her, um, her input because, you know, we had some situations um, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, where I had some really close friends who had to live with us for a little while or things like that, where they had some stuff going on in their families. And my mom, in particular, my dad was always super supportive too, but like we just kind of had an open door policy in, in those types of situations. And it just was, I loved seeing that and seeing, I'm like tearing up because I'm just like, oh, I think about those those moments where mm-hmm. it's um it's just so nice to see, I think that kind of support where it doesn't have to look typical to anybody externally. It's much more, and what the book focus on focuses on is much more about this support friendship support, familial support, finding strength through that type of support, and then powering through, powering through really tough situations. That's so well said, because I think that growing up in the 90s, and I'm sure before that too, like so much of like the pop culture that I consumed, it portrayed a particular mom as like the ultimate mom, like the mom that stays home and bakes cookies and like is always available. And that's a great mom. Like there are so many ways to be a good mom. And I know you are a mom. And I think it's like amazing to watch my friends like figure out how to be their own kind of mom. But I do think that we were raised as far as like the the messaging and maybe the conditioning we were getting from the media. I hate to be like the media. Um, but I just, I think we were fed a lot of images of like what that mom looks like. Yep. And Barb, Tara's mom, does not look like that mom. Like she is really just figuring out her life. And yet she is the mom that is able to show up for both of these characters. Mm -hmm. And she is the one who Elizabeth wants to go to because her mom is not able to be supportive, at least not until the end of the book. And I think that is a really important moment. And I too love that we got letters from Tara's mom to Elizabeth. We find out that they kind of like work the system so that Elizabeth gets to talk to Tara's mom Mm -hmm. and get advice from her. I, I love that. I think, and it's also it like really messed with my head that 
Elizabeth's mom is like three years younger than I am in this book because she was so young. Oh, you when... mean Tara, Tara's mom? Yeah, she's yeah. When they Tara's say mom. They're, 20, they're like, oh, we're twenty nine. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm like fanning myself. Like, what I know. Is going it was on? just making me laugh because I actually I had Patrick when I was twenty nine. So I was just um, thinking in that moment. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that she has you know a twelve year old in the book and she has this wisdom, this motherly wisdom and, um, and whatnot at that age when I was literally like having a baby for the first time. And even when I had Patrick, mind you, I had him at NYU in, in New York. I remember the nurses were like, you're like a child. This is, you know, cause in New York, like that's extremely young. And it was just kind of, again, you think about it. And so that's why I, I thought it was just, um, that was, I will agree. That was jarring for me to be like, oh my God, she's 29. Oh, I feel, I feel like very ancient. <laughs> yeah. I often get disoriented in books that I read for the podcast about the fact that I'm, I'm now closer to the age of many of the parents than I am to the age of yep. the like protagonists. But this one really, this was an extreme situation. One of my other favorite things about this book was the way it models communication between friends. And I really want to dig into this because it's something that I still really struggle with as an adult. And I felt like I had so much to learn from these two, mm -hmm. even though they're 12, like they're, they're not even teens, they're yeah. teens. And it is not all smooth sailing between these two throughout the book. They actually have a lot of arguments and it's a lot of simmering tension because it is pretty much all letters. They're, they're able to talk on the phone very few times. And I pulled out a couple of quotes that I wanted to share that I thought I was just like blown away by their ability to be direct with each other, to be honest with each other, to perhaps be like a little too honest with each other sometimes, but even like their ability to set boundaries with each other was really impressive to me because that's something that I, I really struggle with. And Elizabeth, one of her struggles is that she, I think, thought that she was going to be like the happy one when her best friend moved away and Tara was going to be the one who struggled. But it turns out that Tara is having a much better time at her new school than Elizabeth is having in her own life. And, and Tara doesn't quite know how to navigate that. So Tara writes things like, should I be talking about and joking about what's going on in my life with my family, my friends? I just don't know what to do. I don't know if I should tell you about the kids here. And Elizabeth says, of course, you should be talking about the play and your friends. I like knowing there's a different life going on, one that isn't mine. And right now yours seems kind of perfect, which is really sad. And then, oh, this one really broke my heart. And this, I think, is like so real to the experience of being 12. Elizabeth at one point writes, Tara, I could go on and on about Christmas here, but I have to stop and say something. Do you know that in your letter, you called me one of your best friends in the entire world? One of your best friends? One of them. I thought I was your only best friend. And then in parentheses, you are my only best friend. So what are all these other best friends you have? Yeah, that is, that's an age where I think, especially because of all the changes in terms of like activities you have going on in your life. I remember going through versions of that with some of my own friends where there was this sort of big upset if, um, especially for instance, when I went to summer camp and I came home and I had like all these stories and experiences that my friends from home did not have. And there's like a little bit of a divide. And then you start doing activities with other kinds of kids from different schools or in different grades or whatever it may be. And you also start to evolve and change and maybe your interests are no longer aligning as much. And I remember that, that specific moment, like I remember having conversations with like that or like fights with friends in probably like late middle school, early junior high kind of age around that kind of stuff. This sort of like possessiveness and feeling like if if I'm not the only one that my best friend likes or vice versa, then like I'm gonna lose them. I'm gonna I'm just gonna lose them. And I also think that it represents in Elizabeth's case this idea that like Tara Starr is like one constant in her life and to feel like that might be she might also be losing that when things are falling apart with her parents and whatnot that is very anxiety inducing and i'm sure at that age like the way that she communicates it is very much the way a 12 year old would but i think it represents that larger anxiety of like are you no longer in my life either like am i just am i just fully alone and yeah i, I think that um that moment for them and that that it seems like such a stupid fight when you're 
when you think about it, but when you really dig in, like it, it essentially just represents a lot of like deeper insecurities for Elizabeth in particular. I still feel that way with my friends sometimes, which is so silly. Like I, I almost feel like we're we're almost back in that time because people are moving to different cities. Like for years, most of my friends were all centralized in New York. And now like a lot of my friends are starting to have kids. And so those dynamics change. So it's it's almost happening all over again. And even though like I know I talk about my multiple best friends, but when my friends talk about their multiple best friends, somehow it's like not okay with me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, wait, I'm sorry. You have other best friends. It's a weird thing. We're we're possessive sometimes. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, again, it's funny since I have two sisters and we're so close in age, I feel like I have built-in best friends. Like it doesn't matter yeah. what happens in life. We just are so, so close and we always will be. So it's it's been funny because when I have had more ups and downs with friends, like I've always been very fortunate that I have my sisters to lean on. And I sort of think of, like, I think of Jen and Kelly as my best friends. But then also my friend who we were talking about earlier, Kristen, like she, I've known her since I was in first grade. So she feels like a sister to me too. And it's one of those things where it's funny because again, we've been through so many ups and downs together that there's this built-in history. And as I was reading Elizabeth and Tara Starr, like some of their little fights and whatnot, it reminded me of Kristen and myself when we were younger and just the different phases that we went through. Like seventh grade was definitely the worst year for our friendship. And it's funny reading like some of the different things that they were they were experiencing and much of it had to do with us going through different things in our lives and, and also just like figuring ourselves out and what we wanted and whatnot. But, but it is funny, like I'm definitely, Kristen now has a, I think Molly is six. Um, her daughter is six. And I mentioned this book to her and there's like a few other chapter books that I've been getting for, for her and Molly to read. And Kristen will tell me, she's like, oh, we just watched, you know, X, Y, and Z, things that we used to watch as kids. And then I'll pass along these chapter books to her. And I'm like, it's kind of fun to be able to, to reread or re-experience some of these, like the literature that essentially represents this time in our life that reminds us of the different dramas and ups and downs that, you know, we all went through. So, so yeah, it's, it's just, it's really funny, but again, it feels very, it feels very honest. I think the book yeah. itself and the writing, again, these are two, as we mentioned earlier on, these are two legends in this genre. So it's just like, of course they mastered it and it is great, but really I felt I felt like it was just so authentic and true to what it is like to be that age, separated from your best friend and just trying to figure your life out and feeling insecure in a whole bunch of ways. I'm I'm like, I'm kind of getting like the chills just hearing you talk about that friendship with Kristen because it's so special. Like that's so neat that you have that. And I, of course, I'm like, you know, I'm sort of going back to my ninth grade self where I'm like, oh, those 10th grade girls are so cool and they're such best friends. And it's <laughs> neat to hear you talk about that. I think we should talk about maybe their like main concerns about each other because there's a lot of tough love going on. Yeah. And Tara's main frustration with Elizabeth throughout the book is really that Elizabeth doesn't express herself enough mm -hmm. and doesn't stand up for herself enough. And so I wanted to share a couple of things that she that she writes. She writes, don't get mad at me for saying this. You are always so nice and you always try to see the best in everyone but I know that you're really depressed and scared and unhappy and you didn't do anything to cause it and you don't deserve what's happening. It's so upsetting. If you won't get angry at your parents, then I will. She also says, I do get angry at you sometimes. I want you to yell, to be stronger, to march up to your father and tell him, stop it. I do know that you've been trying, but I want you to do something major to say the magic thing that will make everything all better. And she's also kind of judgmental of Elizabeth's mom in the same way. Like, because she has a mom like Barb, um, she's like, well, why can't your mom like do what she wants and get a job and kind of put put your dad in his place and and explain to him why his behavior is wrong. And there's just so much tough love. And at a certain point, like she draws a boundary where she's basically like, if you can't, it's almost like if you can't speak for yourself and try to make this better, like, I, I don't know how to communicate with you anymore. Right. And, and I think Elizabeth, responds in a really great way for her, which is essentially calling Tara Starr out for how judgmental she's being. Yeah. And how certainly there are issues and her and her mom are figuring out how to communicate with one another, with their dad, with figuring out how to move forward. But it's not really for Tara Starr to judge and to just, again, Elizabeth essentially counters it. And I think this is like, these are some of the moments where we start seeing Elizabeth really coming into her own and finding her voice because she very much earlier on, it seemed like she was definitely like, 
playing, she was a little bit of a sidekick to Tara Starr, right? Like Tara Starr was like the big personality, the kind of quirky, fun one. And even when they mention like parties and moments they had together before Tara Starr moved, there's often like these mentions of how people thought like Elizabeth was kind of snotty because she was quiet or Tara Starr did X, Y, and Z. And Elizabeth's almost like a, she's she's a little bit of like the best friend and that's it. Yeah. And I think this is the moment in the book where you start seeing a shift and you see her really coming into her own, finding, again, finding her voice and also figuring out, you essentially see her, it's unfortunate it has to happen so suddenly, but you see her sort of like catapulted into not adulthood, but it's a little bit of an awakening for her to the realities of life, to just essentially that she has to change something to get through this situation with with her mom. And what she says to Tara Starr essentially is, give us space because we're figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And I, I read that as an adult. Like at the time, I'm probably just like, oh, like, yeah, Tara's being judgy, but like Elizabeth is being weak and blah, blah, blah. And as an adult, I'm reading and I'm like, good for you, Elizabeth. Like you, you go, you know, you just like, thank God you're, you're figuring it all out um, or at least attempting to. And you're telling your friend who's trying to like force her personality on you to like simmer down until you figure this out in a way that makes sense for you. And I, I really liked that dynamic between the two in terms of their character development, because it also is showing a maturation for Tara Starr, who has gone most of her life just like saying whatever she wants, feeling whatever she wants, and kind of like being a little bit of a tornado. And especially when her mom and dad get pregnant, and she like doesn't want to talk to them and is acting all bratty about it. And they kind of put her in her place and say like, it's happening whether you want it to or not. Similarly, I think in this situation, it's a little bit like Elizabeth saying to her, you can want us to react however we want. You can judge us for not doing it. But like, people are going to go about their lives the way that makes sense for them. And if you don't like it, you can either like disappear from their life or figure out how to deal with it and essentially like be supportive, not be judgy. And I I loved that dynamic between the two because I think through the letters, they kind of have to figure out how to how to navigate this new reality for both of them. At one point, Elizabeth identifies Tara's control problem, Mm -hmm. which I loved. And that was such a mature observation. And that's something that I relate to. And I wonder if it's, if it has anything to do with the fact that Tara grew up in this less kind of stable feeling home, and she feels like she has to exert control over everything around her. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like, she was way overstepping her bounds, especially talking about Elizabeth's mom that way. Like that's not appropriate. And it was cool to see Elizabeth standing up for her and being like, I know that this isn't enough for you, but we're making a lot of progress over here. And yeah, you're going to have to be okay with that. So I feel like I need to use this book as a guidebook for having certain hard conversations with friends in my life, even as an adult. So that was pretty cool. On the whole, Colleen, Tell me about the experience of coming back to this book. Did P.S. Longer Letter Later hold up for you? Did you feel disappointed in it? I loved it. I thought it was, it definitely held up for me. I was surprised by how timeless, I think, the lessons that readers can learn, uh, as we just discussed in terms of communication, in terms of, again, really sort of scary life changes at a young age. I think that each of the girls have these like small worlds and these dramas within their small worlds that are life altering for them, but still feel very contained. And that was a great way, again, I think to tell these specific stories for the two of them, because it's very relatable for for young girls at that age, where again, it doesn't matter like what generation we're in or what, what time period, like when you're 12, And whether it's your parents are getting divorced or like it's something as simple as like you got an F on a test and you're not sure what's going to happen. Like every small drama feels sometimes like it could be world ending. And I think that this book does a really good job of talking about some really, really serious challenges that, as we mentioned, are somewhat universal and very relatable, whether it's happening to you or to a friend of yours. And again, I think that it really held up in the structure of it, the fact that it wasn't instant gratification, that it required a little bit of time and patience between the two girls is also a lesson that I think holds up as well, where you don't always have to have like a knee jerk reaction to something. Sometimes it's okay to like process it, sit on it or have a reaction. And then later in the letter, like there are a few letters that they wrote as as we were talking about that. There's a whole letter, it's it signed. And then there's like a second letter after because it's like, I reread what I wrote 
And this is actually what I think. And that that's like, that's great because it also shows that you are allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to be emotional and then like dial it back a bit. And I think, and maybe it's because it was like the time that we grew up in, but I kind of hope that this, like the age group that's of that age right now, that they also realize that. Like, I mean, certainly don't go like all over the internet and blast out every feeling you have. But if you do, you can also change your mind. You can think about it. You don't like, I, I like the, the fact that they are all over the place with their emotions in this book. And that is kind of what being 12 is. So yeah, I, I thought it really held up and I really enjoyed it. I was, I will admit, I was like surprised that there wasn't really, as far as I saw, like anything explicitly problematic in it. And I was kind of expecting just because of the time period it was written in for there to be something along those lines. And again, I, I just finished it and I was like, that was really wholesome and really enjoyable and just really, really, really well done. Yeah, I agree. I didn't pick up on anything problematic either, which gave us, you know, a few less issues to talk about, which is unique for this podcast. You can just rave about the book yeah. instead, which is which is kind of a delight, you know? <laughs> yeah, talk about how much fun we had reading it. Mm-hmm. Other than P.S. Longer Letter Later, Colleen, what have you been reading lately that you would suggest to our listeners? We are kicking off summer reading. What should they be packing in their beach bags, their pool bags, or just like sitting at home and getting into? Okay, so I have a few books that I've read recently. I think most of them, by the time we publish this, should be out. I recently read Can't Look Away by Carola Lovering. So good. Um, It's a little bit of like a domestic drama meets thriller. Really fantastic. I also read recently Four Treasures of the Sky by Jenny Tingwi Zhang. And that is, it's historical fiction. It's just, I mean, she's a beautiful writer. And this came out, um, I want to say like a month or two ago. And it's this like sort of wide ranging approach to the Chinese Exclusion Act and repercussions of that. I also read a novel Obsession by Caitlin Barash recently, like so good, so messed up and twisty and like all great, like dark ways. But that was a fun read. And then two that I actually I'm just starting. The first is Never Saw Me Coming by Vera Kurian. That came out, I think, last fall. And then the second is More Than You'll Ever Know by Katie Gutierrez. And that is coming out. Katie's book is June 7th. And pretty much all of them are debuts except for Can't Look Away by Carola. So that was also fun for me as a upcoming debut novelist to just like take a look at what else, you know, people's first books are are like and whatnot and just how talented they all are. But thus far, those are some really, really great books that I've read recently. And one other one I wanted to shout out because it made me, I was thinking about it on the list of like general themes that you like to talk about ahead of time that you sent, where you asked like, what's a book that you just love, like a, a book in general. And one of the books that I've been thinking about as I'm working on my next novel, but also I was thinking about when I wrote The Wild One too, is The Awakening by Kate Chopin, which I read in high school for the first time. And I think in a way, it's like a nice follow-up or next step. Into It was written in like the late 1800s, so very different in terms of timing. But in P.S. Longer Letter Later, like they both go through their own awakening. And again, there's sort of like different different moments in life, I think, for women, or at least for myself in particular, where I've had something happen and it's just kind of opened my eyes to what I want out of life, to things that are happening around me, to things that are happening within myself. And The Awakening was one of those books I read, I think I was a senior in high school, and I had a lot of stuff going on in my life anyway, and it just kind of felt like it opened my eyes to again what I sort of wanted and how I saw myself in the world a little bit more than what I had been experiencing previously. And so that's another one that again, it's, it's a classic. It's, it's certainly not a new contemporary novel, but I just wanted to add that to a list. It's, it's not light reading necessarily, but it's a short book. It's beautifully written. And I think the message, talk about a timeless message. The message in that book is just, it's like, it's a feminist classic. Well, that is a classic that I have not read. And thank you for the reminder to put it on my list. I guess I wasn't required to read it in high school. Um, And you gave us so many other great recommendations that I will be sure to link in the show notes. And now we've come to the part of the show where I get to ask you about your debut novel, Colleen. I have. Oh my gosh, it's so much harder to talk about my own book than another book. I so I'm nervous. I, <laughs> I have been waiting for the opportunity to be your number one cheerleader for the wild one for how old is your oldest son? He's three? almost three. He's turning three in a, in a few days. Okay. So let's say like f- probably four years since we yeah. had that 
that little drink session. And here we are. This is four years in the making. I read the wild one. I loved it. I I don't read a lot of thrillers. It was out of my like genre comfort zone. And now I'm like, maybe I need to read more thrillers. (laughs) I loved that it was set in summer camp. You are such a beautiful, descriptive writer. It had all of these references to where we grew up, like little details, like Poconos. <laughs> like I just enjoyed it so much. It's Thank so you. great for summer reading. What can you tell us about it or about the writing process? Yeah, so I I started writing it in probably like 2017, I would say. And initially when I was writing it, it was told from multiple perspectives. And I had wanted it to be a middle grade novel, actually. And... I was frustrated with the fact that there were all of these great, like, not so much novels, because I think there is a lot of great literature where, like, girls are kind of having adventures and whatnot or coming into their own for that age group. But one of the things in particular was, like, this idea that Stand By Me, for instance, which is based on Stephen King's novella, The Body, that there was, like, that and The Goonies and, like, all of these different movies that were out there that had kids, boys, essentially like parentless in some capacity going on some sort of adventure outside. And there was like this underlying like hum of danger and maybe crime, but you didn't really know. And I just couldn't really find anything that felt that way for young girls, except the closest was now and them, which again, it's essentially more coming of age, but there's still a little bit of that, that angle. And at the time when I started writing, like I couldn't even find now and then on a streaming service. I had to buy the DVD and I watched it. I like reset up a DVD player and I watched it. Now it's available on streaming. But that was one of the, like the initial ideas. And I had originally, like my original title was called Adventure Girls. The book was completely different. But I started writing it and I went to the NorCal writing retreat that you mentioned earlier. And I remember the author in residence at the time, she you know, we were talking about the book and we were talking about her books as well and her process and whatnot. We all had lots of wine as well. And she she just turned to me at one point. She's like, you don't really want to be writing a middle grade novel, do you? And I was like, no. Like I had, <laughs> I had finished a draft and I was like trying to get into it more. I was obsessed with it at first. And then I just started like losing steam a little bit. And so that's when I kind of, I fully pivoted. I, um, we did a workshop there. It was really helpful. And I focused in particular on like the feedback had been that Amanda, who is, ultimately the narrator of The Wild One. She had the strongest voice. And so a lot of the characters, in a way it was helpful. This whole year of writing was really helpful because I had done character studies on the other girls. And so I ended up totally pivoting it. I created, um, I turned it into an adult novel and focused on Amanda in present tense and again, amped up the thriller piece. But I also really wanted to use the genre to explore a lot of like other issues that I think childhood trauma being one of them, but also just kind of this idea of, as, as we mentioned, like where we grew up, like sort of gendered expectations and how we as women often like contort ourselves to fit into those expectations. And one of the things like I've talked to um, Megan Abbott about this, and she does this so well in her novels, but it's this idea of like, when you try so hard to fit into these expectations, it creates this like simmering rage. And at a certain point, it explodes. And so I wanted to, again, kind of explore a lot of that because I I think it's just really true to life. And so so yeah, so it completely transformed them. But the whole reason why I, I started with this idea of the setting being at summer camp was because I had gone to summer camp for five summers when I was growing up. I had the best time. I'm a total camp person. So I just want to like throw that out there because my book is not a book that is like summer camp is amazing and blah, blah, blah. It's much more summer camp is a great setting for again, that parentless piece of things. But also like I wanted to show how quickly a really safe environment can like the bubble can pop. But anyway, so I had gone to summer camp and loved it. But then went on in my life. And I hadn't visited the area where I went to summer camp since I was probably at camp at 13. And then I started dating my now husband and his family has a like they go they rent a lake house at Lake Wallenpawpack, which is right by my old summer camp every summer for like a week or two. And so our first summer of dating, I joined them on this trip and I made Pat go to Onika with me, which I think was slightly like terrifying for him because it's all girls. And every time he walked anywhere, they'd be like, men in the row. And Pat's like, what is happening? (laughs) Um, It was really fun to re-experience that. 
And just being in that setting and being around, I knew in that moment, like going back to Onika and just being on the lake and like just how much I, I loved it and all the calm I felt. I was like, I have to, I have to set a novel here at some point. So I tried a few different ones, then tried to quote Adventure Girls and then totally pivoted and it became the wild one. So it's, it's been quite a, a bit of a journey, but it's also, I think like the roller coaster of the debut of like, you, you have a lot of like false starts and um, a lot of pivoting and a lot of ideas that just don't materialize. But ultimately, I think like even the, the ideas that you end up scrapping, you oftentimes at, can sort of reshape into something new. And it's not lost work. It's just, uh, in a way, like research to get you to where you really were meant to go. Well, your research shows and your passion for this setting shows. I'm so thrilled for you. I, I promise I am not exaggerating when I tell you that like watching you go through this as somebody that like I grew up with and have sort of just like observed over all these years, it makes me feel mostly very proud and excited <laughs> for you, but also like maybe I can do it too. And you that's can. like no you're, small thing. You're, you'll be fine. I'm not worried about you. You just, you just, you just got to get it done and then it'll, it'll be out there in a bestseller, I'm sure. Well, first, yours is going to be out there in a bestseller. Can you believe that as this is dropping? So we're recording on May 6th to time to timestamp it. So when this drops, Colleen, you will officially oh, be gosh. a published author. What will you be doing? On the 14th, we have an event, which I guess this will probably publish like a few hours before the event, um, but it is open to the public. So it's in New York City at Rizzoli Bookstore. I'm doing a launch event with Joe Piazza. She's um, hosting it. And we're going to be celebrating the wild one. So I'll do a, a Q&A with Joe, probably a short reading, and then Q&A with the audience and signing books and, and all of that. So that is at 6, I believe, 6 p.m. at Rizzoli Bookstore, which is in Flatiron area in, in the city. Well, if you live in New York or if you're anywhere near New York, go check out that event. I will make sure that everybody listening has access to your social media handles so they can follow along and, and keep up with what you're doing. I was going to say, there's like it's some books, but it's also a lot of kids. So I apologize in advance for anybody who doesn't like watching toddlers do ridiculous things. <laughs> but they're so cute. Like, they're <laughs> so cute. And it's so fun. Again, like, just... I, we grew up with your husband's family. Like, it's just, it's so fun to like watch, to watch them grow up. And, you know, I, I sat next to your brother-in-law in geometry. And I, I remember that. it like once talking about our favorite breakfast cereals. <laughs> so yeah, here we are. And I can't believe it. This has been so fun. I really appreciate so your time. Listeners, go check out the show notes for this episode for all the details about Colleen's recommendations. And of course, about the wild one, I will be linking to everything in the SSR Instagram stories this week as well. And Colleen, just congratulations. I'm so happy for you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. This was such a blast. And again, it was like so fun to reread this book and, and also just to have an excuse to be able to catch up with you for an hour plus. So, so again, thank you. And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited for whenever your book, whenever you finish that book and it comes out, if I have a podcast at that point, which I probably won't, but I'll figure out any way to, to be able to return the favor. <laughs> Great. Well, now I can start planning for you to come on the podcast again when your next book comes out because now we're on this schedule. So everybody just stay tuned because I got to get hyped again. Colleen, thank you. This was so fun. Thank you, Allie. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.